Have you ever walked through a haunted house? They're a fun and seemingly safe way to get your heart pumping. Most of them have a formula. A series of misdirects and jump scares designed to lull you into distraction with a story or provide a false sense of security, and then bang, they hit you with the chainsaws. There are two methods to getting through these adrenaline-flooded haunts. One, you scream and run. And two, you walk through with the measured confidence of a psychopath telling yourself the entire time that none of this is real and these people are going to let you out alive. But that's not how it works with a real house of horrors. A real house of horrors does not let you know what it is at first glance. It does not come with a disclaimer that you may be scared or an exit door in the middle in case it all becomes too much. Usually, it just looks like a house and the owner, a normal neighbor, who waves hello while mowing his lawn. It's not until you get past the house and into the shed that you see the middle-aged woman hung upside down like a field-dressed deer. Inside it seems messy at first and strangely furnished until you realize the odd pattern of the lamp you're staring at is eyelashes. There is no noise, no brute with a chainsaw, just an unassuming man who walks away calmly. I want to say that in this situation, one might still have just the two other options of behavior. But that isn't so. Because most of us, especially if you're here, have an inborn sense of curiosity. Would you be able to turn away? Or would you have to look? To walk into the chaos and see what else was there? Would you be afraid? Would you be excited? A little of both? There's no way to tell exactly how you would feel in this situation until you're in it. So let's get you there and see what happens, shall we? I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. feelings about haunted houses and haunted attractions in general because I love the setting and the like the experience and the makeup and the story but I hate to be startled. Yes. <laughs> if I could go through without with like knowing that no one was going to try and get on top of my face because they can do that now, mm-hmm. I would I could do them. But now they can, like, touch you and be right up in your business. Right. I would just love to walk through a really creepy house, like, undisturbed. Yeah, no and one's going to jump out, great. but I can look at all of this awesome stuff. Yeah. I mean, there can great. be people there if I see them when I walk into the room. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd rather there be, like, a group with me or I'd rather there be around. Oh, yeah, you're not going to be around. by yourself. I mean, but, like, actors. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I don't. I don't want to be startled. Like I don't want to be harassed. I don't get anything from that. Some people do, and great for you, man. Like, you're employing a whole lot of actors with your need for terror. Yeah. So I appreciate that. But I, I can't – I don't like the 
they, they have upped the ante so hard now that like they can grab you and take you into another room. No, I don't want to actually be kidnapped. I hate it. Get out of here. So much. Anyway. <laughs> hey, Leslie. Hey, Allie. <laughs> hey, Fiends, and welcome to October. We're finally here. We're attempting to pack a lot of heavy hitters into this month for you all because we love you and we know that this is when everyone is looking to get extra spooky. Uh, So if you haven't given our viewing companion to Tusk a whirl yet, (laughs) do get in there and give it a try. We want to hear what you thought. Please. (laughs) We want to hear it so badly. I know. We really want to know how this was. We're very nervous. It was an experiment that we liked a lot, and we definitely want to do more spooky movie content, but we're also always interested in hearing how you think we can improve. So chime in. Maybe the next movie thing will be more organized, like a normal podcast, and we'll just review it, and maybe we'll just keep doing the viewing companions, because we really like watching movies together. Or maybe we'll take a complete left turn and talk about horses instead. I do love an equestrian. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) You know. Because you have the power to suggest. Ooh. And Leslie is leaning heavy into the horses. Wow. (laughs) Either way, there will definitely be more extra content available this month, and some of it will be exclusive to our patrons. And our patrons-only field trip is coming up in just a few short weeks, so now is a better time than ever to head on over to Patreon and support We Would Be Dead. With just a little monthly donation, you can gain access to so many fun extras, occasional discounts to our merch store, a little gift from us. Um, In the future, we're talking about doing some Zoom meetups with you guys. Um, And the distinction of knowing that you are among our favorite people on the planet. Yes. We see you, patrons, and your support has allowed and will allow us to continue to move forward. We are currently focusing on more rewards for your awesomeness, so please stand by. Uh, Oh, our October campfire stories are also coming up soon. Um, And this month we will be collaborating with our talented makeup artist friend, John. If you're not watching his 31 Faces of Halloween, you should get on that. There will be a link in the group. Um, Most nights I'll share when I can. Yeah. Or you can share or John can share. But you guys should watch. It's super fun. John will be doing some terrifying makeup while we tell you spooky tales all around the glow of our fake campfire. We encourage you to dress festively. And what day is that? The 16th, I believe. I thought I had written that down, but I didn't. Whoops. Yes, Friday the 16th of October. Okay. And that's going to be some extra, extra fun for you guys. I think I can pencil you in. Um, And dress festive, please. (laughs) I'll try. Okay. Also, keep an eye out for our Flat Fiend project that we will be releasing this week. We want you to bring us with you anytime you make it to a haunted attraction or a spooky cemetery tour or just a really cool Halloween decoration display. More on that on our social media later, but we will send you a printable so that we can come along for the ride. And as always, please help us avoid looking like a ghoul in real life by stopping by Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. We live off your kind words and have our minds set on immortality at this point, so please help us out when you can. We have noticed your recent validation and therefore are more apt to appear in public. Thank you. We appreciate you all. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And now, without further ado, I did get to everything, right? I think you did. Perfect. So now, without further ado, (laughs) on with the show. I'm a little nervous about this one. (laughs) This is the grossest one we will ever do. (laughs) I'm just going to put that, I mean, maybe one day I'll find something grosser. 
But it is, it is a humdinger. Wonderful. So if you are sensitive to graphic, gory imagery, you might want to dip out. I'll try and provide a, a extra warning in case you're feeling real confident and then it goes away. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you the chance. But it's going to be us talking about it, so it'll be a little more palatable, I think. Yum. Let's do this. Oh, God. I didn't mean <laughs> that kind of <laughs> – some people actually do say that this guy is a cannibal, but there are, he's not. There are no actual, there's no actual evidence that he ate any of his victims. Okay. Just putting that out there. Here we go. Plainfield, Wisconsin is a teeny tiny rural town with a gigantic legacy in horror. Plainfield is technically labeled a village, which is incredibly quaint and adorable, until you Google some images and realize it's a lot more deliverance and a lot less Christmas cookie Montana. Wasn't that our fake town that we created for a Hallmark movie? It was, yes. <laughs> As of 2010, the census reported that there were only 866 residents of the village of Plainfield. And that figure has stayed pretty constant for quite some time. So it's a little place. Usually, when I take a dive into the town our story is located in, I come up with some fun facts. A little bit of history, another famous resident, or an oddball landmark. But not this time. Nope. Plainfield's got... Nothing. Big old goose egg. It is known for exactly two things. First, Plainfield is where half of the Werner Herzog film Strotsky, I believe is how you pronounce it, was shot, which should give you a little insight into what we're dealing with right there, as Werner Herzog isn't exactly known for films that are cheery and not bleak. Hmm. Yeah. And second, Plainfield was the home of today's subject, known fittingly as the Butcher of Plainfield, and sometimes a slightly more fanciful Plainfield ghoul, Ed Gein. I know, ghoul. That's a good one, right? What did that director do? Werner Herzog? He makes documentaries and stuff. They're they're very depressing. Okay. It's like like a lot of bleak. I'll put some Werner Herzog links for you guys. But if you know who he is, you totally got the image right away. So, Edgeen was a murderer, grave robber, and maker of a great many things out of just the contents of human anatomy. Mm. Yeah. He is responsible for some of the most stomach-turning images the world has ever known. And he managed to do it all from the teeny tiny town of Plainfield, Wisconsin. This case is not a modern one, though. Heavens no. So let's get situated and look back on the time when the story I'm about to unravel takes place. And we're going to start in 1957. Leslie, do you want to tell us a little bit about 1957? Yeah, a funny story. I like actually looked up the state. Oh my god. Just like coincidentally you were looking up 1957? Yeah. I know you do that a lot. Yeah, it's so crazy. (laughs) It's so crazy how it always works out. I know, it just lines up perfectly. I think you have psychic powers. I think I do. So in 1957, Eisenhower was president for the second time. Go Eisenhower. Woo. The Little Rock Nine were a group of nine African-American students who were escorted by the 101st Airborne Division soldiers into Little Rock Central High School in 1957 after initially being blocked by the um, Arkansas National Guard and racial segregationists. So they were, like, able to get into school. Good. Yeah. Um, All Shook Up was Elvis Presley's uh, top song. Oh. Yep. Or that was the top song. The top movies were An Affair to Remember, 
Jailhouse Rock, Twelve Angry Men, Old Yeller, and Bridge on the River Kwai. Serious business. I know. It's like crazy because 1957 feels so long ago, but I like know all those movies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Burger King Whopper was only 37 cents. Oh, man. Lucille Ball was everyone's favorite person. Was. She still is. I know. She's a good actress. She's a delight. (laughs) Um... Invented by Frederick Morrison, Pluto platters were all the rage. Holly, do you know what a Pluto platter is? I don't. You may know them as Frisbees. (laughs) Get out of here. (laughs) Nobody, Pluto platter? Pluto platters is what they were originally called. (laughs) Frisbee was actually a pie company in Connecticut, and the locals used... Uh, they used to toss the empty pie plates. That much I and, knew. Yeah, so hence the name. And so like another company had bought them, which was Whammo. And <laughs> How are you not saying it them that like this? Whammo! <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Whammo. I feel like I have to. I had quite a day today. You did. <laughs> We're getting through it. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I had a Sunday. So yeah, Leslie. I know this is a Tuesday, but I had a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> you did, so we're going to – We're, we're going to – we're going to go with it. Yep. Um, and then this is the craziest story. Bring it on. In 1957, Richie Ashburn was a center fielder for the Philadelphia Phillies. And that's a baseball team for anyone that's confused. I know that one. Okay. Just making I saw you sure. look at me. Yeah. Just I know. It, I sure. live so close to Philly. If I didn't know what the Phillies were, I would have been assassinated. Yes. Well. Anyway, during a game on August 17th, 1957, Ashburn hit a foul ball into the stands that struck spectator Alice Roth, wife of Philadelphia Bulletin sports editor Earl Roth. Oh, no. Breaking her nose. Yeah, she broke her nose. Oh. When the play resumed, Ashburn fouled off another ball that struck her while she was being carried off in a stretcher. No! Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Was she okay then? I think so. That, that's where the story ends. Oh, God. It's like a no, she was fine. <laughs> prayer for Owen Meany moment. Jeez. How crazy is that twice <laughs> by the same guy? That is the most unlucky woman <laughs> in the history of unlucky women. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm pretty unlucky, and she puts me to absolute shame. I know. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, so that was 1957. Man, what a time. So get yourself in that place. We're in 1957 in little tiny, teeny tiny Plainfield. And while we're there, um, November is deer season in Plainfield. I mean, I guess it's deer season all over the place, but uh, yes. it's especially in Plainfield. And every morning before the sun peaked over the horizon, the men of the village are traditionally up and out. The temperature would be around a brisk 26 degrees at that hour and only climb to roughly 43 in the heat of the day. The men would bundle up and layer on their camouflage, packing their guns and sack lunches. They would quietly drive out of town and into the woods as the sun came up slowly and blanketed the town in light. Meanwhile, anyone who remained would go about their days as usual, making breakfast for their children, opening up businesses, and beginning their farm work for the day. You see, Plainfield was an old-style Main Street town built in the middle of a lot of farmland. Most of the residents were farmers, but the land in Plainfield was harsh and inhospitable, so everyone seemed to be struggling when it came to both money and food, hence the deer hunting. So they decided to be farmers in a place where you couldn't really farm. 
Perfect. Good. And they just kept doing that. They didn't Ooh. stop trying to farm. They just kept trying to farm. That's all they knew. You would, I, you would think at one point someone would be like, this farming is not working out well. <laughs> we should take up something else. Maybe have a factory or something. I don't know. No. They just kept at it. I guess there's something to be said for their tenacity. Yes. <laughs> November 16th, 1957 was a morning just as I had previously described. After most of the men went off to hunt, the town began to open for the day. By midday, though, a few residents had noticed that the hardware store was suspiciously still closed. The doors remained locked, the lights were off, and there was no note on the door from the owner, Bernice Warden, as to, where she, as to when she would be back. And this was out of character for Bernice. Remember, we're in a small town where everyone knows everyone, and they knew to expect the hardware store open, and so if she had to, like, go off for a little while, she'd just leave a little note that would be like, back in an hour, or had an appointment, but there was none of that. But for a little while, the locals would just brush this off and assume that maybe Bernice's son, Deputy Sheriff Frank Warden, was responsible for the store that day, as sometimes he was, and had elected to go deer hunting instead. As the day pressed on, and no one saw hide nor hair of Bernice, it became clear that something must be wrong. So the police were notified. Another Plainfield resident told authorities that they had seen the hardware store's truck leave from the rear of the building around 9.30 a.m. Bernice's son Frank returned from deer hunting at approximately 4 p.m. and was met by local police, who informed him of his mother's disappearance. Frank told authorities that his mother was supposed to be in the store that day, and this was highly irregular. He sped over to the store to see what might have happened. Being the town's deputy sheriff, this was double duty for Frank. He opened the door of the hardware store to discover a less than promising scene. The store's cash register laid open and bloodstains covered the floor. Not looking good for Bernice. Not at all. While there was no surface evidence that presented itself immediately, Frank Warden already had a suspect in mind. 51-year-old local handyman and quiet weirdo Ed Gein who we all know totally did it. <laughs> Spoiler Ed, alert. I know. We talked about him already. Ed lived on the outskirts of, a, of town in a rundown farmhouse. He was quiet and odd, unkempt, and often dirty. A lot of times people said he was like kind of gross and smelly. Mm. Mm-hmm. He did odd jobs to stay financially afloat, and since the death of his mother, he had done little to keep up with the farm. Ed had come into the hardware store the night before and told Bernice that he would be returning in the morning for a gallon of antifreeze. And sure enough, the last sales slip that Bernice had written out on the morning of her disappearance was to Ed Gein for a gallon of antifreeze. What? He's a man of his word. My goodness. With that, the Washera County Police were off. That's the county in which Plainfield is located. Washera is how I'm going to pronounce that with confidence. Correct me if I'm wrong. Bold. I'm going bold this week. <laughs> Other residents had informed the police that Ed had been invited to a neighbor's house that evening for dinner, as he was a lonely old bachelor and a few families would occasionally take pity on him. And in reality, while weird, Ed was always kind enough, especially to the area children, which sounds like it's going in a total pedophile direction, but it's really not. There's not pedophile stuff in this one so breathe easy in that regard thank god too because honestly i have had a hard i have a hard time with crimes against kids and last week we had a few Mm -hmm. when authorities arrived at the neighbor's house the woman of the house was quick to inform them that ed had just left to take her son to the grocery store for a few last minute items but remember he is not terrible to kids 
Right. So it's not going to end badly for the song. Okay. Phew. <laughs> Just a little relief right in the beginning. So the police hightailed it out of there in record time, meeting Ed at the door and placing him immediately under arrest. With that, the Washera County Sheriff, Arthur Schley, headed off for the Gein house to look for Bernice Warden, hope still flickering in the back of his mind that maybe she was still alive. Oh, oh. Sheriff. You sweet, sweet summer child. Oh. <laughs> Upon arrival at the Gein residence, it became clear that no one was home. But the sheriff and his team had grounds to enter, obviously, though I bet they wish they hadn't. First, police walked through the property and searched for unlocked doors, because there's no need to make more work for themselves, right? But doors unlocked, you go through that one. Sure. They found that no doors to the main house were unlocked, but there was an outbuilding. And that was sometimes referred to as a shed in some recountings of this, but more accurately, it's called a summer kitchen, which is a building that would have been designed to be next to the main house where you would prepare food in the summer months to keep the heat of the hearth that needs to be constantly running for food prep and canning and stuff away from the house, thus keeping the living quarters cooler. Right. Which is pretty smart. Yeah, very nice. The sheriff entered the summer kitchen slowly through the unlocked door. It was dark and smelled of dampness and decay. As he wandered past the threshold, Sheriff Schley felt something brush his head. He looked up and noticed that something was hanging from the ceiling, and upon first sight he thought it to be a field-dressed deer. He took his flashlight from his belt and shone it upwards, and what he saw sent him careening out into the freshly fallen snow to surrender the contents of his stomach. Was it not a deer? It was not a deer, but it was field-dressed. It was Bernice Warden, totally naked, headless, and slit from groin to sternum the hollow cavity of her chest visible as her blood drained neatly to a bucket on the floor. Groin to sternum. Groin to sternum. That's the best way I could think of to describe it. There yeah. are pictures. I got to figure out how to do that thing where they're blurry at first and then you can click on them because these are pretty intense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we can figure that out. Yeah. I'm doing that in my brain right now and I'm not clicking on it. Cool. <laughs> so, guys, it's not going to get, like, less gross from here on out just to let you know. I promised you a warning and then I gave you that without one. But there's a lot more. Were all the guts, like, hanging? Are you going to get into that? Oh, here are we, we go. Gonna talk about it? Field okay. dressing, for those who are unaware, is a practice often used by deer hunters. When they make a kill... They will slit the deer up its belly and remove the entrails and internal organs, often leaving them behind in the woods for scavengers. And oddly enough, this practice has sometimes led people to hysterically think that there's been murders in the woods. Yeah. Because they just find piles of guts. No, it's a deer. Uh, removing the internal organs will ensure that the deer's body temperature will drop rapidly, thus preserving the meat more effectively and preventing the growth of bacteria. It's not a process used on humans. Not for any reason. There are refrigerated trucks that can transport human bodies. No need for gutting them in the woods. So just in case you were thinking, maybe this was a commonplace old-timey practice. No, the fuck it wasn't. I mean, I guess if they're in the middle of the woods and they're taking them home to eat. Deer? Yes. Totally common. People? No. Not at all. I'm just saying if they were going to eat people. But he doesn't eat her. Okay. Uh, and then what's up with it? I think it's just pure laziness. Pick up those guts. <laughs> so those guts are somewhere else. They never, they, well, they, they never find... All of them. Oh. Let's put it that way. 
Just for a little background, embalming came into practice during the Civil War, and before slash during that time, bodies were transported and held for funerals on large slabs of ice. In fact, frequently an undertaker would use a cooling table to help the family display the deceased, which was a decorative metal table with lots of holes and slats designed to be placed over a giant block of ice. You can still buy these at oddity stores today. They're super cool. The body would be placed on the table and kept cool whilst their family paid their respects. Field dressing has been around a lot longer than those contraptions, and no one thought to use it on family members. Nowhere in the history of mortuary science was field dressing grandma commonplace. This was batshit crazy, and we're just getting started. Though the position of Bernice's body, which I have yet to fully describe, may seem insane to a casual onlooker, it would be a familiar sight to deer hunters. As I mentioned earlier, Plainfield was full of those, policemen included, so the sheriff certainly knew what he was looking at and why it might have been done. Now on to exactly how Bernice was positioned. A wooden crossbar sharpened at both ends was inserted between the tendons of each of Bernice's ankles, and her arms were tied to her legs, so she was hung upside down spread eagle to drain, which is exactly the way a deer would be prepared for processing or taxidermy purposes. Now, I truly wish I could tell you that this is all they found, but it is by far not. Moving further into the summer kitchen and immediately calling for backup and probably Lysol gloves and a thousand plastic bags, on the table, they found a soup bowl fashioned from a human skull cap, which was, of course, just one of a set because who only has one bowl? That would be crazy. (laughs) I was just thinking, like, you would have this bowl. (laughs) Listen, (laughs) I'm not going to eat out of an actual skull cap. I can tell you where to buy unless one, though. Unless it was a donated skull. <laughs> unless I know it's ethically sourced, and even then I'm still not eating out of it. Yeah. I would put it on a shelf. God, Leslie. <laughs> it would have, like, your candy corn in it. Oh, that I would do. Or, like, potpourri. A hundred percent, yes. That I would absolutely do. And I can tell you guys where to buy a skull cap if you want one. Don't worry about it. I can't. I can't. You can if I you can. want to. <laughs> You're right. I can. Oh, my God. And because when it comes to decor, there has to be a theme, the detectives also noticed a chair at this macabre table that looked different than the others. It turns out that the woven seat of the chair had been removed, and it was replaced with what looked like a large section of tan skin, secured expertly with upholstery tacks, though it did not bear the hallmarks of animal skin, because it wasn't. This particular leather had come from a human. Oh. Didn't see that coming. (laughs) Yes, yeah, dead. (laughs) I'm making it sound like these items were easy to discover, though. They weren't. Not that they were exactly hidden, like one would imagine someone would do to items they fashioned out of human remains, but they were rather lost in the litter of an absolutely squalid living space. It looks like an early hoarder lived in a crumbling farm home, kind of like Miss Havisham married Elmer Fudd and the two never left their house and just got crazier and crazier as time passed. (laughs) All right, I'm with you. Because Ed Gein looks like Elmer Fudd. Fight me. Yes, he does. He does. That's so funny. He has the hat on in like every picture of him. (laughs) The hat on and that facial expression like, dirt, what? (laughs) I can't. With those discoveries hanging in the air and reinforcements on the way, the sheriff decided they better get into that house. When they did, they discovered more of the same, obviously, and more of the, holy shit, I did not imagine this could get worse and weirder, but it did. First, I assure you that the four remaining chairs in the set were inside. (laughs) Great. What are we, farmers? Oh, no, wait, we are farmers. (laughs) But if you get that joke, it was hilarious. And if not, I feel sorry for you. 
I'm not going to explain it. There were also so many more skin items. There was a trash can fashioned out of skin. Ew. Yeah. Several lampshades. Ew. And if that gives you Nazi vibes, well, it should. He had to get his inspiration somewhere, and we will get back to that. The mess was littered with more skulls as well. Two of them were affixed to the ends of Ed's bedposts. And I mean... (sighs) You were like... Yeah. (laughs) You're torn with those, aren't you? That's a badass bed! (laughs) Sorry. I mean, my aesthetic is not crumbling farmhouse of horrors. It's it's more artfully placed than that. But like, could you now put like fake skulls on your bedpost? I would never now put without fake about skulls him? anywhere. You're right. What was I thinking? Get out of here. Mine would be a beautiful like brass bed. Well, that's what I was something. saying. Like, if it was like an iron, like a like an iron skull, like on your, would you not think of him? Like, I don't know. Keen would have done this. No, because I just innately think this is far more artful than that guy. Elmer Fudd would never. <laughs> he did it all wrong. <laughs> he was so gross about it. Come on. Oh, okay. They also found some bracelets because if you have a skull bed, you probably wear leather wrist cuffs. And they found a they, – and of course they were people leather, clearly. Course, yeah. They also found a drum fashioned from stretched, tanned human skin. Okay. So, because, you know, sometimes you need a little drum circle when you're killing, when you're processing tons of people. And a window shade with a pull that had been fashioned from a pair of women's lips. Ew. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't even know how they did that. Yeah. That's confusing. How he did that. There's no they. It's just one guy. Nobody else does this. (laughs) And realize, you guys, that I am easing you into this. At this point, detectives has de- have decided that hurricane lamps and flashlights were not going to cover it in this situation because this ramshackle disaster house doesn't have electricity. <laughs> oh. So they brought in a generator and lit the situation up. Woof. I don't know if I would have wanted more light because all of that is a lot scarier in the dark or not wanted any more light because more light means I have to see more hellscape furnishings. Oh. What's next? A box of vaginas? Oh, wait. Yeah, it's a box of vaginas. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. So many vaginas. We'll get to that in a second. Because he didn't just make furniture out of people. Oh, no. There were wearables, too. Great. Uh Uh-huh. Upon entering his bedroom, um, you know, after they noticed the sweet skull bed, investigators found a belt that Ed had fashioned out of women's nipples. Yeah. (laughs) You heard me right. Whole belt of just nipples. You know how sometimes you just can't pull an outfit together and nothing you own looks right? Mm-hmm. It's probably because you don't have this belt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Like sometimes I want like a studded belt. If you had nipples though? it just doesn't though? feel right. And I think the nipple belt would work. <laughs> yeah. The best accent. You're instantly yeah. a conversation piece. Like a nice like black empire waist dress For with sure. like a – like a high-waisted nipple belt. Yeah. Really, like, For those accentuate who, who like chest. a high-waisted nipple. I love it. <laughs> now who's taking this to another level? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to sleep in my skull bed. You're going to wear your black dress and your nipple belt. We're really getting a lot from this week's story. We're doing, yeah, we're, we're living life. We are living everyone's best life. 
except for the people who belong to those nipples. It's not their best life at all. <sighs> Were they all alive? You're going to get there. Yeah. I'll, I'll sit back. <laughs> <laughs> That's when they noticed the boxes. There were an awful lot of boxes lying around his room. They filled with leaves? No. Okay. No, that was last week. We have to go go a step further. Okay. And if this were a choose-your-own-adventure podcast, I would add right here, look in boxes or burn the whole place to the ground. Burn. But it's not. (laughs) Though maybe I'll try to do one of those in the future. Wouldn't that be fun? Yes. That could be like a crazy campfire story. Such a night. short episode for me. I'd be like, burn, done, <laughs> bye. We're going to do it. We'll do it as a campfire story where okay. the people who are listening have to choose our, their own adventure. Okay. I think that'd be super fun. All right. I can write that given enough time. Cool. You're going to have to write some of it too. <laughs> anyway, I think that'll be super fun. Keep that in your brain. It's going to be good. Moving on. What was in the boxes? What's in the yeah. box? What's in the box? <laughs> This is a straight up episode though And you don't get to choose I get to choose And I choose Look in the box Damn it The first one Is the aforementioned box of lady bits And I said vaginas Because the word sounds funnier More of writing jokes Is about what words sound like Than you might think But that's a digression That doesn't belong here And we can talk about writing jokes At another time If that's your thing Anyway I know my anatomy And the exterior of the female genitalia Is called a vulva And that's what this was A shoebox full of vulvas I think that's funny enough. Vagina sounds funnier. <laughs> it does. The G sounds. I imagine they had been mummified or tanned or treated with some kind of salt in a way to preserve them because you can't just throw one of those in a box and walk away. It but would never did keep. He? No, they oh. were like, they were all, hmm. They failed to have like a really visceral description of each vagina. I just know there was a whole box of them. Vulvas. Vulva, sorry. It sounds better. <laughs> God damn it. Oh, yeah, you can't just throw one of those in a box. It would get all like rotted and disgusting, and that's not what this was. After that, I probably would want to stop looking in boxes. But again, we can't. We have to press on. Though a box of vulvas is probably number one on my nightmare list. Okay. A box of dicks would be a lot funnier because anatomically, those are the cards we have been dealt. Penises are funny. Yeah. They just are. <laughs> What's in box number two? (laughs) (laughs) Next, detectives opened another shoebox that contained a handful of noses. All right. Four to be precise. There were canisters, like oatmeal canisters filled with rolled up tanned skin. Yeah, you got to make your chairs out of something. Maybe you had a bigger dining table. Okay. And now we will get to what you have all been waiting for, the outfit that probably went with that sexy belt that I mentioned earlier. First, investigators found a box containing leggings sewn together perfectly with the skin removed from a pair of human legs. So, like, leggings? Wait, what? Say that again? Okay. These (laughs) legs had just been skinned and then reassembled into pants. Okay, so, like, legit leggings. Leg leggings. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. They're called leggings Everywhere. I don't know why they don't call them pants. They call them leggings everywhere. I think people love a pun. Probably. They, this is like clinical reports. They felt like so good about it. We're going to call them leggings. And this, these are like police reports they call them leggings. I don't, okay. Mm, That's what they found in the in box number whatever. 
And I think you see where this is going at this point. We've clearly stumbled upon Dr. Frankenstein's sewing room, and the rest of the monster surely is waiting to be uncovered. I'm sorry, Frank, I didn't mean to do you dirty in a joke. Frankenstein is actually my favorite monster, or Frankenstein's monster if you're purists who get angry. I am. I am one of those. You shouldn't be, because you can actually use both, colloquially. But for those of you keeping score, I also look forward to covering Mary Shelley as soon as possible. Because I love her, and I wrote college essays on her. And she's the queen of goth. (laughs) Woo, she was a lot. The next item recovered was a corseted vest made of women's a woman's torso skin from shoulders to waist, breasts included. Ew. Because don't be cheap, Ed. Go boobs or go home. Oh, and by corseted, I referred to the fact that it was laced in the back so it could be tightened to fit appropriately. Okay. You don't want a saggy lady vest. Right? I... <laughs> okay. <laughs> So you could tighten it with the skin. Like, was it all skin or was there, like, like the, uh, ribbons thrown in? Uh, there was some sort of eyelets and some sort of lace. Okay. And by lace, I mean, like, a string, not, like, also it was lacy. <laughs> <laughs> I, mm-hmm. Okay. People are still coming at me for Frankenstein's monster, so they're all right. Don't worry okay. about it. <laughs> There's no word on whether it was there was any boning to retain the shape because, of course, it has boning in it, you know. Yep. But um, that would have been a lot more difficult to accomplish. And though we learned later that Ed wore many occupational hats, Seamstress was not one of them. There were also nine different masks made from women's faces, hair and scalp included in some cases. Wow. So just, like, skin your whole ass face and dry it out. That's what I'm talking about. Later, um, after he's... After all of this is done, all of his they've discovered all of his things. They interview local children. Remember, I said he babysat, oh. who said that they had been to his house and that he had shrunken heads. And he told the boys that they were from the Philippines and they were Ripley's oddities type things. They weren't. They were ladies. Oh my god. Uh huh. Yeah. What's even better about these masks that he had um, was that they were mounted on his wall in his bedroom for the most part, like hunting trophies. Some of them still with lipstick on their mouths. Ew. Mm-hmm. I hate this story. I told you it was going to be the <laughs> grossest story. It's October. We're starting it off with a bang. So, uh, yeah. There were the ones on the wall, and there were a couple in a bag, and one of them looked rather familiar to the police officers. But we will get back to this. Remember I said this. Most of the skin masks were mounted on the wall, as I said, like hunting trophies. So we're sensing a theme here. Everything is treated like deer, I suppose. Yeah. The head collection was not complete, however. In a burlap sack next to the kitchen in the main house's potbelly stove was the freshly severed head of Bernice Warden. And in the plastic bag next to it was her heart. Oh. Mm-hmm. That's the only guts they found. Interesting. Yeah, maybe the rest of them went in the fire. Maybe they okay. went. They he buried. Who knows where what he did with them? But I don't think they looked for them too hard, as they had quite enough evidence for the time being. At this point, the police had seen enough and left this nightmare factory to the medical team to bag and move along. The cops then went back to the jail where Ed was being held. I imagined to yell, "What in the holy fuck was that, Ed? Jesus Christ! Vaginas are out for me now. You ruined them." Yeah. Huh, ruined vaginas forever. 
And what in the holy fucking deed? I certainly want to know, don't you? As violent and terrifying as all of this may seem, I have to tell you that Ed was not a particularly violent man. And I can feel you not believing me right now, but I will convince you. I swear. Ed went on to confess his crimes as soon as the police began to question him. He had no interest in lying or being difficult. And really, the police weren't sure what they were even asking about at this point. There were just so many body parts in various states of decay and complete preservation. But Ed went on to explain. He wasn't as prolific a murderer as it would seem. No, Ed was a grave robber. And a murderer, too. Don't get me wrong. But he didn't kill all the women whose parts littered his house. No, no. He dug them up and brought them home. Ed told investigators that between 1947 and 1952, he made as many as 40 visits to three local graveyards to exhume recently buried bodies while he was in a daze-like state in the middle of the night. On approximately 30 of those visits, though, he said he came out of the daze while in the cemetery— and left the grave in good order, returning home empty-handed. Which is a rather convenient thing to say. However, given the rest of the things he confesses to, I doubt this is a point where he would have had the presence of mind to lie. On the other occasions, Ed dug up the graves of recently buried middle-aged women he thought resembled his mother. We'll get back to that. And took the bodies home where he tanned their skins to make the aforementioned items. Ed admitted to stealing from nine graves from local cemeteries and willingly led investigators to their locations. Alan Wilmofsky of the State Crime Laboratory participated in opening three test graves identified by Ed's. The cas- Ed, just one Ed, not, not several Ed's. The caskets were inside wooden boxes. The top boards ran crossways, not lengthwise. The tops of the boxes were about two feet below the surface in sandy soil, so they didn't really bury them too deep. Two feet down, that's nothing. Oh, wow. There's a reason people say six feet under. You usually have to dig. Ed had robbed the graves soon after the funerals while the graves were still not completed. Oh, well, there you go. The test graves were exhumed because authorities were uncertain as to whether Ed was capable of single-handedly digging up a grave during one evening's time. Because you see... Ed was kind of a little guy. So they were like, can you, this little dude, do all that in one night? But he could. They were found as Ed had described. Two of the exhumed graves were found empty. One had a crowbar in place of the body. That's relatively the same. One casket was empty. One casket Gein had failed to open when he lost his pry bar. And most of the body was gone from the third grave. Yet Gein had returned rings and some body parts thus apparently corroborating Gein's confession. Body parts? They don't tell us which parts he gave back. Huh. Ed. <laughs> there, that's so much. It's a lot. But before we can get into the why of all this gore-coated mayhem, I think we should talk a little bit about Ed. Cool. He wasn't your average farmer, that's for damn sure. And in order to get to a place where you can skin corpses and field dress the local hardware store owner, you have to go through some shit first. I would think. I would, I guess, hope. Yeah. (laughs) Not that I'm excusing or explaining any of his deeds. Quite the contrary. As you'll find out later on, while lots of people want to paint Ed as having a lot of hardwired mental illnesses like schizophrenia, schizophrenia, I kind of disagree. I'm not giving Ed an out at all, but for the most part... 
Murderers of Ed's caliber are not born. They are made. So let's see what happened. To do that, we're going to have to go back. Way back to the turn of the 20th century. Edward Theodore Gein was born in La Crosse County, Wisconsin in 1906. And Leslie, would you care to tell us a little bit about 1906? Yeah. After uh, all of that? I know. And that's another date I actually looked up today. Oh my gosh, we're just on Mm -hmm. fire. So, Theodore Roosevelt was the president for the second time. Mm -hmm. The Wright brothers were granted a U.S. patent for their flying machine. Ooh. (laughs) C.C. Brown created the hot fudge sundae. Love a hot fudge sundae. Thank you, Mr. Brown. J. Stewart Blackton released the world's first stop-motion animated film called Humorous Phases of Funny Faces. Come on, dude. (laughs) (laughs) And not animated, Aladdin or the Wonderful Wonderful Lamp was a movie released that year, so that was fun. Yeah, that is fun. Uh, Willis Carrier received a U.S. patent for the world's first air conditioner. Oh. Yeah. And here they were sweating it out at a farmhouse That's with what a summer I was kitchen. Thinking. I was like, "What? Well, get an air conditioner, dude. I don't think they were on the cutting edge. Yeah. <laughs> George Cohen's musical George Washington opened on Broadway. Mm. Oscar Strauss became the first Jewish U.S. cabinet secretary. John Hope became the first black president of Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. And the average annual income was $500. Annual? Yeah. Isn't that wild? That is wild. God, it's so much more now. Yeah. Yeah. That was 1906. All right. So that's, and it's funny because those are all the modern conveniences and things that people would have been aware of, but I feel like these people, like, were outside of that. Yeah. And I mean, that was that era where everybody was inventing stuff. So things were just like coming out and- They were, you know, there was probably things, you know, they might have gotten a patent for it, but it wasn't really going to be released yet. Yeah. For a long time. Interesting. Yeah. The different parts of America were were so vastly different in that Mm -hmm. era too, while some of them were so industrial and so on the cutting edge of culture and everything. Some places were still basically the Wild West. Right. I mean, at this point, like electricity was... Not in most houses no. still. and Gas lamps. Mm-hmm. I don't even know that the Geens had gas lamps. Oh, wow. I don't know what their the, what the status was on the electricity in that house. I know when the police went in there, they had flashlights and lanterns. Mm. And then they brought in a generator to shine on lights. So I'm assuming they just had no way to illuminate this house at night. Hmm. It's like, it was the 50s. Elvis was jailhouse rocking. I know. <laughs> Why was that the way you lived? Like people were watching television. Yeah, well, not him. Yeah. I will post pictures of his house in our photo suite this week, ones that you can view without being completely and totally traumatized, and ones that will traumatize you. Hopefully, like I said, we'll figure out how to blur them so you can make the decision on whether you want to see something crazy graphic or not, because uh, I I don't particularly want to spring that on people. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, Thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs> I'm going to show you later anyway. Ed was the second of two boys born to George Philip Gein and Augusta Wilhelmine, Wilhelmine Gein. Ooh, rhymey and possibly wrong. Confident this week. Gonna go in. 
Ed had an elder brother, Henry George Gein, as well. Now, Ed's parents were real interesting characters, but they would have to be, right? Yep. They were two people who, for the life of me, I cannot explain how they ended up together. George was sort of a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none situation. He worked a lot of odd jobs, including blacksmithing. Okay. Not an odd job a lot of people pick up, but it's 1906. You have to have a smithy. Yep. Tanning, which would explain how Ed was so familiar with the process. He did carpentry and sold insurance, but he could never really hold down a job because of his penchant for drinking. George was a pretty extreme alcoholic, and according to some sources, given to the odd extramarital affair. Augusta, on the other hand, was the complete and total buttoned-up opposite. She was a stern and profoundly religious woman who believed in discipline, piety, modesty, unwavering biblical obedience, and back-breaking work. Damn woman. Yeah. <laughs> she was a real spare-the-rod, spoil-the-child type of gal. You know, a real hoot at parties. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> George and Augusta married in 1899, and things were trash at home immediately. George drank all their money away, and Augusta believed that sex was wrong and filthy. Even married sex, all sex, wrong and filthy. Yet somehow they did manage to have children. So I guess George had to preface things with, this is for procreation, and I hate it as much as you do. <laughs> that sounds about right. Right? It's this I is mean, the Lord's work. I don't want to do this, but... God's making me. I, we have to have babies, yeah. so let's go. <laughs> And all of that sounds very sexy, if you ask me. Super. Mm-hmm. Because George was a nonstop marching band of disappointment, Augusta was given to berating him loudly and insulting him, especially in front of his children. Which, come on, girl. George would respond to this by beating her, and occasionally the boys. Oh, sounds about right. Mm-hmm. So the Gein household was not a very happy one. The Geens originally lived in La Crosse County, which was a more populated and urban section of Wisconsin at the time. Lots of bars for George to waste away in. And when the boys were still quite young, Augusta's brother, who owned a grocery store, sold uh, like a franchise of that grocery store to George to run. And it was near Plainfield, so the Geens up and moved to Plainfield, which, you know, makes sense. But Augusta kind of really ran with this opportunity and relocated the family to a very remote 155-acre farm. It wasn't like in the town. It was kind of on the outside. It was extremely isolated, and even when visitors attempted to call, Augusta would turn them away. So even if the neighbors were like, welcome wagon, she'd be like, no. (laughs) She believed the outside world was filled with sin and sinners and that her boys would be corrupted should they be allowed to experience much of it. Freaking fire and brimstone. Ed and his brother did go to school, though. They weren't allowed to have friends. Heavens no. Or I shudder to even think about it. Date. God no. That was never an option. Ed's classmates would all remember him as an odd loner, which is the common theme in in our podcast. They said he would also often laugh inappropriately at random times. And this is a fun behavior you might recognize from um, the movie Joker. It's called Paradoxical Laughing. And it's classically a tip-off that something else is going on in the old noggin. Mm -hmm. Paradoxical laughing is a sign of mental illness and unstable moods. 
and the big mental illnesses like schizophrenia, not just little ones. It can also be a manifestation of extreme anxiety, which I would also have if I thought I was wading through the devil at school nonstop. Every day after school, the boys would return home and spend hours listening to Augusta read from the more violent portions of the Old Testament concerning death, murder, and divine retribution. Augusta was fervently religious, and I guess she declared herself as Lutheran, which always struck me as weird because I didn't think the Lutherans were as strict as other sections of Christianity, other sects of Christianity, that is. Uh, I would have no, been, they I would are. have, I would have yeah. gone for like Pentecostal or something, but no. she identified as Lutheran. She preached to her boys about the innate immorality of the world, the evil of drinking, and her belief that all women, except herself, every other woman but her, were naturally promiscuous and instruments of the devil. You know, nothing too crazy. <laughs> and Ed really took this to heart, by the way. He thought his mother was perfect, a divine creature sent directly to the earth by God. If, and if he didn't start out thinking that, she sure did everything in her power to make it happen. I mean, isn't that how we all think of our mothers? Yes. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, Ed was not below average intelligence. There are so many accounts of this story that like to paint him as somebody who just like didn't know better and was very backwoodsy. And I'm not going to discount the backwoodsy thing. He sure was that. But his IQ scores were average and he did relatively well in school. He was just extremely socially inept, mainly because everyone was terrifying and he wasn't allowed to socialize. Right. That'll do it. Ed attended school up to just the eighth grade, at which time he would have begun working on the farm to help his family. Um, you talked last, was it last week or a couple weeks ago, about how Victorians viewed their children as little adults? Yes. <laughs> that would be similar to this. So eighth grade is not that old. And that at that point in time, he started working on the farm to help his family. And he would remain at that farm for the rest of his free life. Okay. On April 1st, 1940, Ed's father, George, died of heart failure, caused by his alcoholism at age 66. It's 1940, mind you. So this put Ed's at about, Ed at about 34 years old, living at home with no friends and never having gone on a single date. Sounds like my brother. Oh, no. <laughs> That's kidding. not true. <laughs> just kidding. Sorry, Adam. <laughs> We're just making sure you're listening, Adam. He's fine. <laughs> So he's never gone on a date ever, and he also believes that his mother is a physical manifestation of God. Yes. He's wow. doing great. Wow. I mean, it's kind of a good life. Is it? If that's what you think. <laughs> if you're living with, like, the divine. <laughs> I don't think it's a good way, because his mother is, like, the divine enforcer. Right. It's a very strict, I mean, I guess he doesn't know anything else. Henry I mean, and Ed. Every other woman around him just wants to have sex with him and manipulate him. That sounds terrible. I mean, when you put it that way, <laughs> maybe he felt great. I don't know. But also, he can't have any of them. Right. No matter how much very he might confusing. want one. I, that is extremely confusing. I'm very popular, but I can't go near them, and everyone thinks I'm weird. Yeah. Good times. Henry and Ed began doing odd jobs around the town to help cover living expenses. For their mom. The brothers were generally considered reliable and honest by residents of the community. While both of them worked as handymen, Ed also frequently babysat for the neighbors. He enjoyed babysitting and seemed to relate more easily to children than adults, which happens when you have the social maturity of a Fuji apple. Henry, on the other hand. <laughs> it took me a second. <laughs> I don't know. 
bougie apples seem seasonal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I should mention, and I forgot to earlier, when I said that he they moved to Plainfield to run a grocery store, their father had only kept that in business for two years before he lost it because he spent all of his money on booze. So okay. they didn't have that to fall back on. Okay. They are still just poorly farming in rock-hard soil. Horrible. Yeah, it's a real fun existence. Henry, on the other hand, began dating a divorced mother of two and planned to move in with her. So Henry's like, I got to get out of this. It's not great. Good on him. And he worried about his brother's attachment to their mother. So Henry's in a, in a different state than Ed. He doesn't see their mother the way Ed sees her. Okay. And he starts to speak ill of her around Ed to oh, try no. and – Oh, I know. To try and – Kind of shake him into reality. Like, your mom's not that great. She is damaging us. But Ed, of course, responds with shock and hurt. On May 16th, 1944, Henry and Ed were burning away marsh vegetation on the property. And this is a common practice back then. Nothing to raise an eyebrow at. But this time, the fire got out of control, drawing attention to the local fire department. By the end of the day, the fire having been extinguished and the firefighters gone, Ed reported his brother missing. With lanterns and flashlights, which is like a common theme in this story, a search party searched for Henry, whose dead body was found lying face down. Apparently, he had been dead for some time, and it appeared that the cause of death was heart failure, since he had not been burned or injured otherwise. It was later reported by biographer Harold Schechter, which, who he wrote the definitive biography of Ed Gein called Deviant. I believe that's what it's called. So the biography that Harold Schechter wrote is is where most people get the majority of their information. Okay. But it does have inconsistency inconsistencies, sorry, and it has been kind of dramatized because it's a book and it has to read like a book. It can't have sections that are just like and then for a while he fixed trucks. Like that's not interesting. So I didn't want to use it as my only source. You know what I mean? Yeah. I try to I try to never do that. Yes, it's called Deviant. Just wanted to double check that for everyone. Anyway, biographer Harold Schechter in this book says or he notices that Henry had bruises on his head. Now, I can't tell you how a biographer noticed this, but the police and medical examiners did not. Okay. I guess he saw pictures or something and said, "I see this." I can't tell you. But this is documented Everywhere. And so that is how I am reporting it here. Okay. Um, before he, well, before they found his brother, what were they burning? Like the vegetables? Um, no, marsh vegetation. Oh. Okay. So like overgrowth in the oh, marsh. Okay. And just burnt it back. That okay. was like a common way of, I guess, like mowing it down without having to mow it down. You just burnt it in a controlled fire. Okay. I didn't know if it was like a Cain and Abel story happening. Oh, well. Wait. <laughs> All right. <laughs> For that, because it might have more merit than you know. And yeah, the copyright of this book, Deviant, is from 1989. So it's not like he wrote it right as it happened, you right. know. So I don't, I don't know how – I would love to hear more of how he made this great revelation in the case many, many years later while writing a book. Anyway, that's beside the point, but we'll get back around to it. The police dismissed the possibility of foul play and the county coroner later officially listed asphyxiation as the cause of death. 
The authorities have accepted the accident theory, but no official investigation was conducted and an autopsy was not performed. Some later suspected that, in retrospect, Ed killed his brother because the thought of him leaving and the way he spoke of their mother was just too much for Ed to bear. Mm -hmm. Questioning Ed about the death of Bernice Warden in 1957, state investigator Joe Williamovsky brought up questions about Henry's death. George W. Arndt, who studied the case, wrote that, in retrospect, it was possible and likely that Henry's death was, quote, the Cain and Abel aspect of this case. Oh. What a keen observer. Wow. Way to go, Leslie. After his brother's death, Ed uh, and his mother were alone. Augusta had a paralyzing stroke shortly after Henry's death, and Ed eagerly devoted himself to taking care of her. It seems like the perfect job for him. Sometime in 1945, Ed later recounted that he and his mother visited a man by the name of Smith, who lived nearby, to purchase some straw. According to Ed, his mother witnessed Smith beating a dog. A woman inside the Smith home came outside and yelled for Smith to stop, but Smith beat the dog to death. I know, I have a dog every week, you guys. I am so sorry. Augusta was extremely upset by this scene, and I think we're all upset by this scene. But she was not upset for the usual reasons. What bothered Augusta did not appear to be the brutality toward the dog, but rather the presence of the woman. Augusta told Ed that the woman was not married to Smith, and so she had no business being there. Smith's harlot, Augusta angrily called her. She had her second stroke soon after, as the world seems just way too much for her to handle. And her health deteriorated rapidly. She died on December 29, 1945, at the age of 67. Ed was devastated by her death. In the words of author and apparently amateur detective Harold Schechter, he had, quote, lost his only friend and one true love, and he was absolutely alone in the world. Ooh. Yeah. And here's where I will mention one thing I left out about the crime scene. The rooms the police explored were horrific chaos, yes, but the whole house wasn't like that. In fact... Any part of the house that Ed's mother had used, including her bedroom, the upstairs and downstairs parlor, and living room, had been boarded up, walled off, and left just as they had been on the day she had died. Museum quality. Oh my. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't do any of that in places where his mother would have been. Around this time, Ed became interested in reading pulp magazines and adventure stories, which, what, like, crime stories is what... They called them adventure stories back then, but this would be like, you know, the crime stories of the time. Okay. Pulp fiction novels and stuff like that. And magazines. Particularly those that involved cannibals or Nazi atrocities. Police found quite a few pulp fiction novels and books about Nazi shitfucks like Angel of Death himself, Dr. Joseph Mengele, who is, whose medical experiments and subsequent human skin furniture so far exceeded the levels of humanity, one might assume that we all have to, that there has to be another word for what he was. Something beyond monster. Just an exploded star of torture and suffering. Anyway, we can see from whence Ed drew his inspirations. What should have been a cautionary tale, read more like a manual to him, apparently. Mm -hmm. If you will recall, I also mentioned before that the police recognized one of the preserved skin masks, right? Yeah. Well, that was because another murder had mystified Plainfield just a few years before Bernice Warden. 
1954, local tavern keeper Mary Hogan had mysteriously gone missing. Authorities suspected foul play, but could find no evidence of the crime. That is, until they looked right into her dried-up eyed sockets on that horrible day in 1957. Ed had shot and killed Mary and dragged her back to his house on a sled. Which... Sounds whimsical, and maybe Plainfield is more like Christmas Cookie Mantana than I have initially gave it credit for. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Who's to say? Driving your shot-up body home on a sled in the snow. How beautiful. It's magical. Now, I know that I said that Ed confessed to all of this insanity willingly, and that's true. But let's don't think that it all went down smoothly and without incident. Poor Sheriff Arthur Schley had had too much. And who could blame him, really? No one discovers all of that and comes away damage-free. Right. (laughs) And he's not like a a hardcore gumshoe big city detective. He's like a small town sheriff. He had never seen anything other than like a fist fight, probably. Right, like a Fargo. Yeah. (laughs) So Sheriff Schley did – he beat Ed to a pulp during his initial confession. He got really – um, unnerved by the things he was saying and slammed his head against a wall. Because of this, and Ed's initial confession couldn't even be used in a court of law. So he had to go through the whole horrible tale twice. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. The sheriff was so compromised by everything he saw that he died of a heart attack just one month after testifying in Ed's trial. Oh, my God. Yeah. One of his friends was quoted as saying, quote, he was a victim of Ed Gein's just as surely as if he had butchered him. Wow. Yeah. So why? Why? Why, in the end, did Ed do all of those horrible things? Well, he did it for his mother. If you will recall, in the very beginning, when I explained the women Ed had chosen to kill and dig up, I mentioned that they were all middle-aged women and reminded Ed of his mother. You see... If Ed could no longer have his mother, well, then he would just have to be his mother, who was perfect in a way he knew he surely could never attain. And so he went about creating of a version of his mother's skin he could quite literally crawl into. Ew. He called this flaccid homunculus his woman suit. Mm-hmm. Because of this, Many people mislabel Ed as a transgendered person. But he didn't live his life with a woman's brain trapped inside a person with the wrong anatomy. No. He just wanted to crawl inside his mother's earthly form and live there. He just wanted to be back in her womb, Holly. That's all. But he wanted to walk around inside her. So not even that. (laughs) Yeah, but that, I mean, if he was in her womb, she'd be walking around. He wouldn't be pulling the strings, though. Yeah, but he can't because he can't actually get back in her womb yeah this is the closest he can i think get. there's some of that but there is there is an element that he says of wanting to be her right yeah not just be and well, like not she, i mean she's you she's know, perfect exactly she's if you, our gift on this world i know, you know if you're gonna try and attain perfection and you have a physical manifestation of perfection why not just slip it on like a coat that would be great no it wouldn't it's really gross i've seen the pictures super gross yeah <laughs> Ugh. Even saying all of it feels filthy. So what became of Ed, you ask? I do. Mm-hmm. On November 21st, 1957, Ed was arraigned on one count of first-degree murder in Washara County Court, where he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. 
Ed was diagnosed with schizophrenia and found mentally incompetent, thus unfit for trial. And we don't see that that often. It doesn't usually work. He was sent to the Central State Hospital for the criminally insane, which is now called Dodge Correctional Institution because we don't call people criminally insane anymore, which is a maximum security facility in Wapun, Wisconsin. And he was later transferred to the Mendota State Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin, where he lived out the rest of his days. In 1968, doctors determined Gein was, quote, mentally able to confer with counsel and participate in his defense. The trial began on November 7th, 1968, and lasted one week, which is not a lot of time for crimes of this magnitude. A psychiatrist testified that Gein had told him that he did not know whether the killing of Bernice Warden was intentional or accidental. Gein had told him that while he examined a gun in Warden's store, the gun went off, killing Warden. Gein testified that after trying to load a bullet into the rifle, it discharged. He said that he had not aimed the rifle at Warden and did not remember anything else that happened that morning. At the request of defense, Ed's trial was held without a jury, with Judge Robert J. Gallmer presiding. Ed was found guilty by Gallmer on November 14th. A second trial date dealt with Ed's sanity, and after testimony by doctors for the prosecution and defense, Gallmer ruled Ed, quote, not guilty by reason of insanity, and ordered he be committed to Central State Hospital for the criminally insane. Ed spent the rest of his life in a mental hospital. Judge Gallmer wrote, quote, due to prohibitive costs, Ed was tried for only one murder, that of Mrs. Warden. He also admitted to killing Mary Hogan. It would be too expensive to charge him with two crimes? Okay. What? You know your town is small when it's too, they just can't be bothered or afford to convict you of your second crime. So confusing. Yeah. Shockingly, as I mentioned, this is one of the very few cases we will cover where, and it's such a small town where you don't think they would make those kind of allowances, but they deemed him insane. Mm-hmm. And it works. And I, frankly, there are other people we have covered that I think were far more fitting of an insanity defense than this guy. Yeah, I mean, there were definitely screws loose. Absolutely. I'm not saying he was totally fit and ready to go, but he also was existing in society without incident other than the stuff he did under, like, a like cover of Yeah, but he secrets. was doing, like, a bunch of weird things. Yeah, he was weird, to be sure. You know, he yeah, he was doing a lot of weird things, mm-hmm. and then like, sprinkled in some killings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do I think Ed was schizophrenic? Honestly, I don't know. Schizophrenia was a mental illness that, at the time, doctors didn't really understand that well. And honestly, they still don't fully understand it. It used to be used as a catch-all for people who were violently unhinged. So if you did a whole, whole lot of bunch of... whole lot of bunch. I can't talk. <laughs> a whole bunch of horrible crimes that they just, people just couldn't wrap their brains around or explained, you were just stamped as schizophrenic. And and we'll see that in so many of the cases that we covered and we have in the past already. Uh, But but we know that that isn't what schizophrenia is. You can be schizophrenic your whole life and not commit a single violent act. It is not an excuse for killing people, even though it would be easier for the legal system and medical community if it were. For all his terrifying actions, once Ed was committed, he was a model prisoner slash patient. And a lot of people attribute this to the fact that he had routine. And he was okay when he had a routine. It was when he was left to his own devices that things went awry. And if you want to say he was schizophrenic, it was when his delusions and stuff took over. If you want to say he had other things going on, 
it was when those thoughts took over. Personally, I would go with the fact that part of it was traumatic. Yeah. He was clearly traumatized, and trauma does not set off schizophrenia. It sets off a lot of other stuff, though. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So um, um, my mental health community, if you want to weigh in on, on Ed Gein's case, I would welcome hearing from you. I mean, I don't have a lot of theories because personality-wise, we don't have a lot of data on Ed. Once he was put away, he behaved well and never gave anybody the reason to raise eyebrows about him. In fact, his psychiatrist, while he was in prison, merely called him a, quote, quiet little man. Mm. Elmer Fudd, hanging out. Yeah, I mean, like you said, he probably just liked having a routine. Yeah, he lived quietly and obediently until July 26, 1984, which is way more recent than I like to think, when he died of lung cancer at the age of 77. Hmm. Yeah, he lived out the remainder of his days. I mean, the staff, everybody that was staff at the hospital that dealt with Ed was like, yeah, he's he does everything he's supposed to do. He's... I wish they were all like him. Huh. Mm-hmm. Can you visit the house? No, you sicko. Okay. Fine. If that was a thing you could do, I would be the first one to get in line with you and go to that house. But unfortunately for us, our horrible murder touristy habits, the house was mysteriously droid by, destroyed by a fire on March 20th, 1958. When Ed learned of this incident while in detention, he shrugged and said, quote, just as well. Hmm. Maybe he was able to fully detach himself from his mom. Maybe. And thus concludes the story of Ed Gein. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a lot. So I look forward to people weighing in with what they thought was going on under, under the hood with Ed. And um, does that story sound vaguely familiar to anybody out there? It does, Holly. It does. Yeah, and it should. Ed's story completely changed the landscape of horror movies as we know them. He inspired some of the most influential horror movie villains and movies in general to date. Leslie, why don't you tell us about them? Yeah, sure. So just some things I was thinking about while listening. You're so coincidental this week. Yeah. Um, so Ed seems to have been the inspiration for characters in several books and movie scripts. Most notable are Norman Bates and Psycho. Mm-hmm. Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Buffalo Bill in The Silence of the Lambs. Lotion-loving Buffalo Bill. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, Psycho was first a book by Robert Block and then made into a movie by Alfred Hitchcock. Um, Block's main character, Norman Bates, was similar to Ed Gein in that he had a complicated relationship with his mother. To which, say the least. Yeah, I was like, and now I'm like, well, it wasn't really complicated. He got it. He knew what it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, it was pretty straightforward. He kept her in the yeah. basement. It's <laughs> he knew what after it was. death. Yeah. Um, he loved her while at the same time being scared of her possessive and manipulative personality. So... Um, that was mostly in that movie that is really, like, the main link. There's And then there's a lot of differences that happen. Yeah. Now, Norman Bates, while obviously totally nuts, was a lot more put together yes. than Ed mm-hmm. Gein. <laughs> yeah. Um, Leatherface is a fictional character in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre film series. So there was one in the 70s and then another one in 2003. Oh, there's a bunch of them. Yeah. The second one – well, the original was in the 70s, and yeah. then 
the second one was released like not all the way in the 2000s but it, it was banned in a lot of places and the second one actually has him inspired by ed gein okay like, they talk about ed well i was gonna say that's the one that i i remember more mm-hmm. i think and that- after kind of looking it up, I was like, oh, I think I did watch this. Okay. I haven't watched it. I read it, about yeah. it. Um, so Leatherface is a cannibalistic and mentally unstable mass murderer who, alongside his family, kidnapped, murdered, and subsequently cooked unsuspecting travelers. Um, so just, you know, an all-around nice guy. Oh, God. The one that they <laughs> released in, I want to say, 2006 or 2007 – is the only movie I have ever walked out of in the movie theater. Oh, really? It was so gross that I couldn't handle watching it, and I left. Huh. And I, I, I never do that. I don't remember. So I, I only remember what I think is the beginning scene. And then I don't know. Maybe I fell asleep. I'm not sure what happened. The cannibalism but, is graphic. Yeah. So I probably didn't see that movie. No. Um, Ed Gein is reported at, well, so as we know, as we have been reporting him, um, at, he was, in, you know, inspired the name Leatherface. Mm-hmm. Um, Leatherface comes from the skin mask that the character is always seen wearing, which hides in the movies is his, like, deformed face. Right. Which we know Ed Gein doesn't have a deformed face. No, he just has an Elmer mm-hmm. Fudd face. Right. Um... And then that's really it. That's really the main connection. There's one other thing that I remember from the movies where in the beginning, the um, characters that are like in the car driving the travelers, Mm -hmm. they hear on the radio that there's like some grave rabblings happening. There you go. And so that's another connection. Um, But all the rest is just a little kind of loosely based on it. So, and yeah, Leatherface has like a hillbilly family and stuff too. Like, yeah, I think they also use a house. I think there's a house in there, and the way that it's portrayed, like when they go in, it's, I think it's supposed to look like what the cops. He has the bodies on meat hooks and stuff too, which is similar. Not, it's actually not as bad as the Mm -hmm. Ed Gein stuff, but it is similar. Yeah. To like, the stuff that he had done. Also, the the second one was released in 1986, and that's the one that deals directly oh, with okay. Ed Gein. Like, okay. they, I, I mean, apparently it was banned in a lot of it's, – it's not – Yeah, because that one didn't even pop up for me. No, I read about it while I was doing my What the Friday this week. So if you guys haven't seen that, you should watch it. My bad. <laughs> I'll tell you some stuff. <laughs> I actually didn't talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, um, but I did – read about it okay yeah i don't know that's what i read okay um it just isn't as easy to find yeah well if we get more information we can put it out there Mm -hmm. um and then the last one was uh james gumb or buffalo bill uh he's a fictional character and the main antagonist of thomas harris's 1988 novel the silence of the lambs and its 1991 film adaptation of the same name yes In the film and novel, he is a serial killer who murders overweight women and skins them so he can make a woman suit for himself. And Ed Gein is obviously similar to this character in that he also made a female suit to wear. Listen, if you're going to (laughs) wear leg leggings, they can't be like peg leg girls. They have to be girls who have a leg you have some room to make pants out of. For sure. It's just logic. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, so um, most of these I found there were a couple other extra in- inspirations, um, you know, like in Psycho, Robert Block did 
he was thinking of Ed Gein in that, whereas, like, Alfred Hitchcock didn't. He just was inspired by the book. Right. Less than Ed Gein. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. And in my What the Friday, I talk about the real Hannibal Lecter. So if you don't know who that is, go and watch because he was also based on a real doctor. Yeah, he's a fantastic psychologist. We should all be so lucky. Yeah, but unfortunate. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, he was a medical doctor. He wasn't a psychiatrist. He was actually a medical doctor because while in in prison, he performed life-saving surgery on another inmate. Yeah, well, I think he worked in, I think he was supposed to have, like, worked in the war. Distinctly possible. Or something. I don't know. There's a whole thing. But I think he was a medical. Yeah, I read about him this week. Maybe a week. I think he was a psychiatrist. I think that's what he was, a psychiatrist. He definitely took in patients like that. That's why they would come to him to talk through other, like, serial killers. No, he did not do that. That's just Hannibal Lecter. I know. That, isn't that who no. you were talking about? Alfredo Bale Trevino. This is the guy that was Hannibal Lecter was based on. Oh, I, sorry. I thought you were talking about no, Hannibal Lecter. No, I'm talking about the guy who actually oh. inspired him. Okay, sorry. He's a medical doctor <laughs> in, um, in a Mexican prison that Thomas Harris met. Yeah. And um, again, I, like I said, I talk about in What the Friday. So if you already saw it, sorry. Um, but he had... Thomas Harris found about, out about him because he was talking to another prisoner who had committed a triple homicide for a piece he was writing for a pulp-type magazine. And this guy was like, I have to tell you, my fellow inmate saved me. I was shot by crooked guards. And on the spot, this guy dug the bullet out and saved my life. And he said, well, I have to talk to this guy. This is a crazy, crazy story. So he talks to this guy, and he's like, very elegant and well-spoken and well-put-together. And while he was in prison, he was helpful and his demeanor was fantastic, and he goes on to tell him he was there because his younger male lover uh, cheated on him, Mm -hmm. and he got very devastated, and so he injected him with sedatives, drug him into the bathtub, slit his throat, cut him into tiny pieces, put those tiny pieces in boxes, and buried the boxes on his father's farmland. A valid response. Mm Mm-hmm. But... Um, was named Thomas Harris, the author of Silence of the Lambs, left the prison thinking, I can't believe this man did that. Like, this man is so intelligent and so well-spoken and seemingly so helpful. Uh-huh. I can't believe he would ever do such a thing. And on his way out, the guard kind of noticed him looking like, what the hell, you know? And the guard said, listen, I know what you're thinking, but that guy is crazy and he is exactly where he belongs. Right. And that's what lit the spark where he was like, I should write about someone yeah. who is very smart and very well-spoken, but savagely crazy. Yeah. And that's where Hannibal came from. Cool. So there you go. Great. That was information you didn't need, but I gave you anyway. Fantastic. (laughs) That clears up our confusion. Yes, I know actual Hannibal Lecter was a psychiatrist. And yes, we would be blessed to have him, all of us. (laughs) Unless you were, what was his, what what, Mason, the one guy's name, that, that doesn't, things don't go well for him in the end. Oh, yeah. He has a very hard time. Yes. Yeah, poor guy. (laughs) <laughs> Gary Oldman, total chameleon. Wasn't that Gary Oldman? Yes. In one of the films? I think it was. I'm so bad with names. Anyway, you'll tell me if it wasn't. <laughs> John's probably like yelling at the... It's okay. <laughs> He's editing. If, it, if I'm wrong, John, you can feel free to yell at me. I think it was Gary Oldman because it's usually the person... He's such a chameleon that I usually remember finding out. Yeah. Things like that. I think... 
think we've covered so many bases. I think we did. And good. if we had no. the... No? We have to toast. Oh, we have to toast. Shoot! It was all so much, I couldn't even think I of it. Know. <laughs> who, do you, I, who do you want to toast to? <laughs> Shit. Um, maybe the the uh, detective that died from the heart attack. Yeah, the sheriff. The sheriff. He he had a real rough go of it. Yeah. And maybe his brother, was it Henry, that yes. like tried to be like, He tried to get out, man. I I'm, yeah. like feel really bad for him because he wanted to just marry that woman who had a 7-year-old son and and get out of get out of their horrible situation yeah. and then he mysteriously quote unquote died. Mm. Yeah. So I believe the sheriff's name was Arthur Schleff. Mm-hmm. So we're going to toast to the sheriff and to Ed's brother, Henry. And the two victims? Well, there were there quite were a more, few. And okay. to Bernice Warden and Mary Hogan, who he yeah. actually murdered. That's who, yeah. That we know of. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of parts in there, and police suspect there could be more than we know about. Okay. So... Cheers to those. And if we had the extreme misfortune of resembling a madman's mother, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. There were also nine different masks made from women's faces. Hair and scalp included in some cases. So just like skin your whole ass face and dry it out. That's what I'm talking about. 